time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Aren't those great words from Jesus? So may the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Now, our sovereign, gracious God, may we, as we gather in Your presence to hear Your Word, receive these words that we've read this morning with new eyes and new minds and new hearts, that we might rejoice that all of our rest is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank You for these things. We commit our time to You now and ask Your blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but I think it's fair to say that this past year has come and gone with some sort of unrivaled pace or speed. Uh, it was here just a few moments ago. It seems like to me that I began to preach from 1 Corinthians last January or this January. And that's a year ago. And the whole year has come and gone and I can scarce believe it, uh, the way time flies. And every one of us, I think, as you get older, at least they tell me as you get older, uh, that time does fly, and I'm beginning to experience that myself. And it goes by, doesn't it, with alarming speed. And certainly 2021 has just eclipsed all the previous years, and has come and flown and gone by. And little, I think, did any of us imagine from last year that 2021 this year would be as it has been. Uh, in many senses, it's been like 2020, uh, unchanged, and yet at the same time filled with many changes. And we're, we've been learning, I suppose, as a world, as a country, as a city, as a church, to live within the, the flux uh, of these changes that are occurring all around us. And it seems evident also that people all over the world are fearful, aren't they? They're frightened. They're terrified. They're uncertain as to what lies uh, tomorrow around the corner for them. So we know when we've looked at the world that people have been very sick, it is true. Some have suffered very greatly and they've been very sick. In fact, some have even died, as we know. And we have been continually and are continually reminded, I think, every day of the brevity of life. That life is absolutely short, uncertain. The only thing that we know is certain for sure is what God has revealed to us in His Word uh, regarding Himself and regarding ourselves. And we can count uh, on God's Word being absolutely true. Job was right. So long ago in Job 7 when he said, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle, and they come to the end without hope. 
He said in Job 9, My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping down on its prey. And his good friend, Bildad, the Shuhite, he said in Job 8, For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, for our days on earth are but a shadow. And that's true, right? We are like the flowers or the grass that's outside there, that blows in the wind. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. Moses reminds us that the years of our life are but 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. I think we all know that life is short, and life is dangerous. In many respects, filled with difficulties, filled with toil, filled with trials, filled with pain, filled with loss. For us as Christians this morning, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, life is filled with hope. Life is filled with joy. Uh, The world likes to talk about the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But for us, Jesus is at the end, is he not? And we live with Him in this life and in this world. He is with us. He has promised to always be with us, to never leave us or forsake us. Yet we know where we are going. We are going to the end to be with the Lord, to be with God Himself. And apart, I think, from the physical troubles that everybody experiences sometime or another, and I believe as you get older, they seem to stay with you all the time, But apart from those physical troubles, we experience, don't we, as believers, uh, spiritual matters, spiritual issues. And those spiritual issues are more significant than all your physical troubles that you can imagine. Whatever lies ahead for you in your physical life, your spiritual life is way beyond that. It's far more significant and means so much more. In fact, Jesus said to His disciples, near the end, in John 16, that in this world you will have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I don't think the disciples really grasped what Jesus was saying to them in that particular moment. But that's what Jesus was saying. You're going to have trial. You're going to have affliction. You're going to have sorrow. You're going to have tribulation in this world. But take heart. I have overcome the world in which you find all of those things. And then he says, my peace, I leave with you. My peace. Dear congregation, who knows what 2022 will bring? It is uncertain. It's only next week. It starts. And it is uncertain, at least I think we all acknowledge that. I think these are days of judgment. God is speaking. God is dealing not just with the world, but I think He's dealing with us. We must turn to God, and we must trust God and believe God. And I think we all need to uh, take the attitude or the approach that I need to examine my spiritual life, and I need to look at my spiritual life, and to be more deeper in the Word than perhaps I've been in 2021. And if God should grant you 2022, then perhaps that will be realized. That your commitment to reading the Word or uh, being more faithful to the Lord and His people, that that would be realized in 2022. When I think about all of those things, I think this is why we need Matthew chapter 11, as we read it here in the Gospel. And in, in fact, how precious 
verses 28 through, 20, through verse 30, are to the Christian. I mean, where else will you go for rest? For spiritual rest? You will not find it in the world. You will not find it in your work. You will not find it in your sports. You will not find it in your relaxation. You will find it only in the person of the Son of God, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's spiritual rest. That's the rest that Jesus promises to us. So I never grow weary of reading Matthew chapter 11. I mean, how could you get tired of hearing Jesus invite you, come to me, if you are heavy laden, and so on. And those simple words of Jesus, I think, that begin verse 28, when He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, are certainly the most wonderful words in the world. Wonderful for a Christian, wonderful even for an unbeliever to hear the invitation of Jesus. And notice, come to me, Jesus says. And why should I do that? Why should I come to Jesus? Because Jesus says, I will give you rest. And I will give you a particular kind of rest. I will give you rest for your souls. What you really need. Not rest from your hard work at the end of a day or the end of a week but rest, spiritual rest, for your souls. So I want to consider these verses with you this morning. And I want to show you five things from Matthew 11. And it's necessary to consider Matthew 11 as a whole. So first of all, I want to talk about the aggravation. The aggravation in verses 1 through 19. The aggravation. That deals with the why. The why did Jesus say what He said Here, in the end of the chapter, the why, the aggravation. Then I want to deal with, secondly, the indictment. The indictment in verses 24, sorry, 20 through 24. The indictment, that deals with the what. The what, verses 20 through 24. And then, thirdly, the revelation. The revelation, the how, verses 25 through 27. The revelation. Then, the invitation and the application, which go together, the who, in verses 28 through 30. So, the invitation number four, the application number five. But why should we talk about the aggravation? What do I mean by that? Well, there are things in the text, in the context, that lie behind what Jesus says, as we come to the end of the chapter. So, the aggravation is found in the context, in the background. So, if you read verses 1 through 18, those verses are filled with this this great man who has come on the scene, John the Baptist. And they are all about him and his, his dealing with Jesus. They're about his life. They're about his ministry. And Jesus talks about John the Baptist. So, in verses 1 through 6, John the Baptist is in prison. We all know why he's in prison, because he told Herod that he couldn't have his brother Philip's wife. And he was put in prison for that. And there he languishes in prison. So he only gets to hear uh, the things about Jesus from his disciples who might visit him. And he's located in a fortress down near the Dead Sea, one of Herod's palaces, where his head will be removed at a later stage, and there he languishes in prison, desperate for news. And so he sends his disciples when they come to visit him, go and and find out, is this the Christ? Because I've been hearing things about him. 
and I just don't know. And so, of course, he's heard about Jesus' ministry, but what he has heard is not what he was expecting. I think John, as the last of the great Old Testament prophets, was expecting the ushering in of a new messianic rule, a new messianic kingdom that would come, and all of their troubles, their slavery, their bondage to Rome and the oppressors would be removed, but that wasn't God's plan. That's not why John was the forerunner. John has not come to do that kind of message, though he seems to be anticipating that kind of change. Jesus is not quite what he was expecting. So he sends these disciples, right? Verses 1 through 6. Find out if Jesus is truly the Christ. So what does Jesus do? I mean, Jesus reminds him, doesn't he, of his ministry. He says, he says back here in the early parts, he says, go and tell John, verse 4, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Have you ever heard of such incredible things? The dead raised, the blind see, the deaf hear. I mean, who's ever heard of such things? Go and tell John what you, John's disciples, have seen and what you have heard. And so, at the end of verse 5, you'll notice it talks about the poor have the good news preached to them. The gospel has been preached. And in verse 6, Jesus reminds John through his disciples and I think reassures John through his disciples when he uses that opening word and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's just a very mild rebuke to John. Don't lose sight of who I am. Don't lose sight of why I have come. Don't miss why I am here. So it's a very mild rebuke and a very tender rebuke that, by the way, applies to everyone who considers Jesus. You don't want to miss Jesus. You want to pay attention to who Jesus is and what Jesus does and has done. And so, this very mild rebuke, blessed is the one, verse 6, who is not offended by me, is designed by the Lord Jesus Christ to remind John of his reason and his purpose. Why you, John, came before me. Why you are the forerunner, the messenger. Why you came, and then to remind him of his ministry, that Jesus is the promised one. The one who reveals God, the Messiah from God. You know, all of us, sometime or another, are like John, questioning, doubting, trying to understand the spiritual realities and truths that we find ourselves confronted with, trying to fit in with a world that is the complete antithesis of what we know and what we believe, and how do we relate to that and fit in. Jesus knows that. John is experiencing that doubt for himself. And Jesus is the one, dear congregation, brothers and sisters, this morning. Only Jesus is the one who answers all our questions and who resolves all of our doubts. In fact, there is not a question you may have or a doubt you may have that Jesus cannot resolve for you. So Jesus reminds the crowd in the, te in the text of who John was. If you look at verse 10, he says, This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So notice, he's my messenger. 
he's delivering a, a message. That's why John came. And he reminds the crowd, if you look at verse 9, and verse 13, and verse 14, he's a prophet. So verse 9, what then? Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He's a prophet. He's a messenger. He's a prophet. Not only that, but in verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Oh, he's a great man too, isn't he? Mm -hmm. So when Jesus reminds <clears throat> the crowd about John the Baptist, this is who he is. He's my messenger, he's a prophet, he's sent from God, and he's a great man. In fact, up to this point, there's been no one like him. But the least in the kingdom is greater than he. And so... This is a man, according to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man who was sent from God, whose name was John. He sent from God. And why, what did John do? He preached, didn't he? He came preaching the good news of the kingdom that men and women and boys and girls must repent. And they must believe the good news. So he preached the kingdom of Christ he preached faith and repentance. And Jesus Himself, we know, when He began His ministry, said exactly the same things. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Is that an important thing? You notice verse 15. Verse 15 says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know what that literally says? The one having ears, hear. You have ears? Yes? Hear. That's what Jesus says. You all got ears? So listen to what I'm saying. That's what Jesus says to the crowd. And then he goes on to talk about those who, who despised John the Baptist, who rejected John's ministry in verses 16 through 19. And he says, But to what shall I compare this generation? Verse 16. They're like children, he says, who sit in the marketplaces and call to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. They're playing games. That's what they've been doing. They were like foolish children, frivolous children. They are childish instead of being childlike. What a great difference, right? They were childish and not childlike in spite of John's message. John's message was a serious message. Repent. Believe the good news. But instead they played their games. Frivolous. While such a messenger from God was in their midst. And notice that twice in verses 18 and 19 that Jesus says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And who is he talking about? He's talking about the Jewish leadership. He's talking about the Pharisees. Those who ought to perceive spiritual reality and truth. Who ought to recognize that what John was saying and what Jesus was doing was to declare the mighty works of God and to bring them before them so that they could believe. 
And what did they do with the works of Jesus? And what did they do with the words of Jesus? They despised them and even despised John himself. What does that mean in the text? It means the Pharisees are the foolish children. The Pharisees are the frivolous, inconsistent ones. It's as if Jesus says, you know, for a while you heard John the Baptist, you saw him, you didn't quite understand him, you stood in awe of this man who seemed to come like Elijah out of the wilderness. There was his austerity, there was his seriousness, there was this call to repentance, but now you've changed your mind and he's too harsh and he's too unsociable and his message is far too severe and you now say he's possessed. He has a demon. Not only John, Jesus says, but as for me, I'm too sociable. You think of me as, as a glutton and a drinker, Jesus says, who socializes with tax collectors and sinners, who socializes with the indulgent and the immoral. And they don't quite get who Jesus is, how utterly mistaken they are of Christ. Why were they mistaken? Because they were blind, right? Spiritually blind. They were unable to recognize the signs of Messiah in the midst. They just didn't believe. Spiritually inept, incapable of understanding the Word of God and the truth of God, though it was in their midst. How often Jesus spoke like that, right? You keep asking for works. You keep asking for signs. And I've shown you the signs, and here I am declaring to you the works of God and the words of God, and you still refuse to believe. Why? Because their hearts were hard. They were spiritually blind, dead in their trespasses and their sins. But Jesus says, you know, I will be vindicated by the truth, because that's what the truth does. So he says in uh, verse, end of verse 19, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Isn't that a remarkable passage, just that? You reject me because you don't have the right perception of me. You think I'm a drunkard and you think I'm a glutton, Jesus says. So that Jesus is disparaged by the spiritual leadership of his time as being that kind of person, a friend to tax collectors and sinners. But isn't that the most wonderful statement of all? That Jesus is precisely that, a friend to the indulgent and immoral, to these tax collectors and sinners. How often we find Jesus dealing so beautifully, so tenderly with people just like that. There is Zacchaeus, right? The, the, the great feared tax collector of his time. And there in Jericho, who that man hated by all of his fellow Jews, he wants to see Jesus but he's too small. And he runs ahead, climbs up a sycamore tree, and guess who stops at the tree as he passes by? But Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Today I must have a cup of tea at your house. I must come to your house. Do you know what the end result of that little get-together was? Today salvation has come to this house to the son of Abraham, Zacchaeus, who repented, right? You see, Jesus truly is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't it the tax collector and the Pharisee who went up to the temple to pray? 
And the one who, who exhibited all the great things he has done, that Pharisee, I thank you, God, that I fast twice a week. I thank you, God, that I'm this and that I'm that and that I'm not like that man over there. Thank you, God. How spiritually proud he was, right? And what did that other man do who was a tax collector, a sinner? He smote his breast and bowed his head before God and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went to his home right, justified in the sight of God. Yes, Jesus is the friend of tax collectors, and Jesus is the friend of sinners. So these, these statements by the Lord Jesus, they speak of an indictment, don't they, against Israel because of their spiritual blindness, their leaders, their folly, and so on, and their sin. And verses 20 through 24, is that indictment that Jesus pronounces are on an unbelieving nation and an unbelieving spiritual leadership because they had refused Him and they didn't repent even when the works proved that He was the Christ. The very works that John the Baptist was querying. When Jesus reminded him, then he would remember that Jesus had come to do the works of God. But not the leadership. No, their rejection of Christ who was among them, their rejection, their judgment would be more severe than Jesus says in the context, the great wickedness of Tyre and Sidon and even Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom in particular. I mean, think of the sins of Tyre and Sidon. Pride. Arrogance. We are a a seafaring people. We have all that we need. And the Bible speaks of the judgment of God upon Tyre in the Old Testament. And think of Sodom and Gomorrah, how utterly angry God was at them that He poured fire from heaven and destroyed them. And yet Jesus says, it will be more tolerable for those wicked, wretched cities than for you, Israel. You know why? Because I've come among you, and you've refused me, and you've rejected me. You rejected John, and now you reject the one that He came to... uh, be a forerunner of. Ah, but dear congregation, this is the good thing about the Word of God. There's always hope, right? There's always encouragement. When the, when the situation is bleakest and dire and judgment has been pronounced, Jesus comes out with these beautiful words. Come to me. You want life? You want to live? You want to have everything spiritually as it ought to be? Come to me. Jesus says. And so in verse 25 onwards, we discover that there are some who actually do believe, right? Verse 25, at that time, same time now, I think Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. Who are the wise and the understanding? Those spiritual leaders. Those Pharisees, they, are the, they think they're the wise and understanding spiritually. But God has hidden from them the truth. And He has revealed it to little children. Because what do little children do? They believe. They come. They receive what is told them. Yes, Father, verse 26, such was your gracious will. This was the purpose of God, to hide these things from these who thought they were spiritually filled with sight, instead were spiritually blind. And then Jesus, talking about these little children, 
He indicates that God has revealed these spiritual truths to them that they have come to know and to understand this truth. These little children, they're not the wise. They're not the understanding. It's a dangerous thing to think that you're wise and spiritually astute and sharp and that you've got a handle on these things. It's a dangerous thing. We are required to always be dependent and humble when we come to God. Utterly dependent for any acquisition of spiritual truth and knowledge from God Himself and a revelation from God. Now these little children, they're not the wise in the understanding of the world as the world sees wisdom that thinks that they know these are ones who believe like little children, humble, of no account. And to them, to them, God has given the spiritual knowledge, the knowledge about Jesus, the knowledge of His Son. You know, salvation is never understood by the intellect. If it is, everybody would be believing it out there. It's never understood by the intellect as a first means. It is always and only understood and comprehended by revelation, by an enlightening from the Spirit of God who takes away the scales from our eyes like they fell from Saul of Tarsus and he saw. That's what happens when we believe, when we are regenerated, new birth and new born again. It's as if the scales of sin have fallen off and darkness fades away because the light floods into our hearts and lives. It's God who reveals Jesus to us. I mean, verse 27, look at verse 27. What a great verse. All things. How many things? All things, right? Everything has been handed over to me by my Father. And now look what Jesus says. And no one knows the Son, no one knows me except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Well, how can we ever know God? How can we ever know Jesus? Look what Jesus says. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That is the sovereign purposes of God. But you can't just know spiritual truth because you think you can comprehend spiritual truth. You need revelation, light. You need to have darkness taken away so that comprehension of spiritual things about the Father and about the Son are made clear and known to you and you believe them. And it's in that setting that Jesus extends His invitation in verse 28 and 29. Now the first thing I want you to consider with me in verses 28 and 29 through 30 is what is it that Jesus promises? What is it that Jesus promises? He says in verse 28, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And look what He says in specifically verse 29, you will find rest for your souls at the end of verse 29. Now what he's talking about, he's talking about spiritual rest, isn't he? He's not talking about you'll be able to go home at the end of the day because you've worked hard and you're very fatigued and tired and I'll give you a special kind of rest through the night. It's not what Jesus means. No, Jesus is talking about spiritual rest that is completely and utterly dependent, first of all, upon a spiritual revelation. The darkness is gone. And the light has come. And now you rest in that revelation and the knowledge of it. 
So this spiritual rest you can never have for yourself unless Jesus gives it to you. Because that's His invitation. Come to me for this rest. Right? For this soul rest. This spiritual rest. So no one can discover what is never disclosed. And so what Jesus discloses is the Father. And the Father discloses the Son. And that knowledge of Father and Son between each other is communicated to these little believing children, childlike, in their approach and their attitude. That knowledge is revealed to them, and they now understand. And isn't it interesting that in the text Jesus says, you should learn from me. You should learn from me. I'm the great teacher. It's true. When he says those things, come to me, learn from me, he means believe what I tell you. Receive what I tell you, Jesus says. So when Jesus promises us spiritual rest, that initially begins in salvation, doesn't it? When you first come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are at rest. You are at peace with God. In fact, we are justified by faith, by believing. This righteousness is imputed to us, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are made right with God. We are at, right, at peace with God because of this justifying faith. So Jesus promises initially in the spiritual rest that he promises, your salvation and my salvation. But it never ends there because Jesus goes on to talk about being heavy laden and burdened. And on and on he goes. So this is an inward change, first of all, isn't it? Your souls. You will find rest for your souls. Isn't that really the only rest that matters? I mean, you can rest over the weekend. Go back on Monday to wherever you go and do whatever you do, and you have to rest again, perhaps at night and Tuesday, but you always need this rest. But when Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest, you have it. It is yours. You possess it. So the question is, well, how do I obtain that rest that Jesus promises? Come to me and I will give you rest. Well, how do you get that? How do you obtain that? Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, he says. He doesn't say, uh, you should first go to John. Check things with John. And then, if you're satisfied, you come to me. Or if you're dissatisfied, then you come to me. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, go to John, come to John. He doesn't even say, go to Moses. He doesn't say, go to the law. No, because those things don't give spiritual rest. Instead, Jesus says, come to me. Don't go to the Pharisees. Don't go to the scribes. I mean, they're supposed to be the spiritual leaders. You will never find rest in them and from them. Come to me, Jesus says. So what, is the, what, what do we notice about that? Come to me. It's exclusive, isn't it? I mean, Jesus doesn't say, look, you come to me, you get this, and then you go over there and you get Buddha or some other religion and their benefits. No, there are no benefits in any other religion. There's only Jesus who says, Unequivocally, you come to me and I give you spiritual rest. What kind of rest? A rest for your souls. It's an exclusive claim, isn't it? 
Wasn't it exclusive in verse 27? It is to the Son and only to the Son that the Father makes known Himself and vice versa, Son to the Father. And isn't it out of that relationship between the Father and the Son and the Son to the Father that springs forth what Jesus says? It's anyone to whom I choose to reveal God to. So that the prerogative of salvation, of spiritual rest, from our salvation, rests with Jesus, and only with Jesus, and not with any other thing. You remember how Peter put it to to Jesus in John chapter 6, when Jesus said, Will you also go away? To whom shall we go, Lord? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where will you go, brothers and sisters, dear congregation? To Jesus. For spiritual rest. And didn't Jesus say exclusively, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. I, only I, am that way. In fact, because I am that, no one comes to the Father except through me. Notice, no one knows the Father Here, in Matthew 11, except through me, John, no one comes to the Father, John 14, except through me. The knowledge of God is only through the knowledge of Christ. You can't come to God apart from Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's not what it is. You cannot have eternal life any other way, with additions. No, it's only through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the prophet Isaiah says these things in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 55, he says, Incline your ear and come to me, and hear that your soul may live. Isaiah 55 and verse 3. So yes, come to me is an exclusive claim, isn't it? But may I suggest to you it's also an exceptional claim. It's not just an exclusive claim, but it's an exceptional claim because without Jesus, no rest. Without Jesus, no salvation. So, there's no deliverance, there's no freedom, there's no uh, saved, being saved out of sin and its bondage apart from Christ. Apart from Jesus. No peace apart from Jesus. So, wonderful as that is, who does Jesus invite? Well, look at the text, right? He says in verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Now what does he mean by that? Does he mean, you know, at the end of the day, you've had a rough work, rough day, working out in the fields, whatever it is. I understand. You know, you come to me, I'll give you some rest for the night. That's not what Jesus means. He's not talking about physical rest in any form whatsoever, is he, from daily work and all of its pressures. Though it would be good, dear congregation, every day, to take your daily work to the Lord and commit yourself and your work to Him. It would be good to do that. And certainly, many of our physical dilemmas and problems result from our spiritual slackness or troubles. In fact, we must say that because we are whole people. We don't just divide our physical from our spiritual. We see ourselves as an integrated human beings, complex, unique, made in the image of God. So that what affects me physically may very well be because of my spiritual troubles. 
that I have. For those listening to Jesus, Jesus is offering them freedom and deliverance from the oppressive nature of a pharisaical law religion, or a works religion, or a works righteousness. Because the Pharisees have got rules and regulations, spiritual rules and spiritual regulations to follow, to do. If you do this, you'll be right with God. And don't do that. So their whole religion uh, was a works-related religion, a, a list of do's and don'ts. Jesus even complains about you lay, you lawyers, and that you lay heavy burdens upon the people that weigh them down. And they can't get rid of them because those things are oppressive. Because do you know the thing about works and a works righteousness? You are never sure, ever, whether you've done enough. You're never sure. And in that sense... It is God who has designed works righteousness in that way that you will feel dissatisfied continually if you seek God like that. You can't. And yet how often we fall back into trying to please God. If I do this, Lord, you'll be happy with me. If I do that, you won't be miserable with me. Trying to work our way to being accepted by God. No, the Pharisees were like that. They laid heavy burdens upon their people with all of their rules and regulations so that the yoke was heavy and oppressive and weighed them down. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy and light by comparison, right? Verse 30, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now you know it's very difficult sometimes to get rid of the baggage, spiritual baggage that you carry around with you. Perhaps you think you can overcome these things in your own strength and power. Jesus says, no, come to me. Come to me. Perhaps you think, well, if I just did that or did that, I would please God more. Jesus says, no, come to me for that rest that you long for. You're not going to find it anywhere else, Jesus says. You're not going to find it in the religion of the Pharisees. You're not going to find it there. So it's so easy to slip into a works righteousness and a works religion. But I say to all of us this morning that if you do that, you will discover that there's always fear gnawing somewhere in your heart and there is an anxiety that clutches at you whenever you tend to think like that. And troubled minds and troubled hearts often lead to despair. And it's to them that Jesus says, come to me. Come. Come to me. Those who are spiritually burdened and spiritually troubled, Jesus says, come to me and learn from me, verse 29. That word learn is the word for disciple. Come follow me. Come believe me. Come trust me. Come give everything that you are. Give it to me. Come and learn from me. And all of you who are like this, heavy burdened and laden with spiritual troubles, Jesus says, come. Come. It's not because we are mindless robots. No, we are complex, as I said earlier. Created in the image of God. Designed to be what God expects us to be, a reflection of Himself, His image. That's why as Christians you are expected and required and I'm required as a Christian to give myself body, 
and soul to the Lord. Physical and spiritual. All that I am. All that you are. By the way, it is because we are like that that some of you this past year have lost loved ones. And in the losing of your loved ones, you have wept and grieved and mourned because that's how God has made us. We are not designed to just ignore spiritual and physical loss. We feel the pain of loss, don't you? We feel it. Physical pain has a spiritual consequence to it. You feel it in your spirit, in your soul. Jesus says, listen, if you come to me, if you lean on me, I will be a husband. I will be the friend who is closer than a brother, that sticks closer than a brother. Come to me, Jesus says. I would be yours, all that you need. Your Savior, your Lord, I'll be everything that you require. In fact, I'll be everything you need to get into heaven. I'll be your righteousness. I only will be your righteousness. There's none anywhere else. Do your works. They will avail nothing. Come to me. I'll stand for you in the great day. Come to me, Jesus says. Because you see, the salvation Jesus gives is a total, complete salvation. And it's only in Him. And so on the great day when we stand at the bar of judgment, we shall, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, when God says, who are you? Why should you be here? I'm here because of Jesus and His righteousness for me. Come, the Father will say. I know you. Come. You're mine. So, it's only Jesus who can be alone with us when we are most alone in our grief-bearing moments, that Jesus says, I'll give you rest. You see, that's the application, right? For all those who are afflicted. And listen, our afflictions are many, right? They're mental. They're psychological. They're emotional. They're physical. They're sexual. There's so many afflictions. So many troubles with these things. Burdens. Jesus says, those are heavy burdens. I'll give you rest. Come, learn from me. Come to me. You know that all of those physical matters that we struggle with, they're all subservient to actually coming to Jesus. You come with those things to Jesus. Because he says, come to me with your burdens and those things that weigh you down. I will take them from you and give you rest. Isn't that what Mary Magdalene experienced? Possessed by seven demons. Who knows what that meant, right? Or the man, legion. Jesus comes to him and just casts out those legion of demons. And when the townspeople come by, there is that man sitting at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. In his right mind. Because Jesus did it for him. Only Jesus can do it. So all of our burdens, whatever they are, all of our struggles, our physical maladies, whatever they are, they're subservient to this spiritual reality of coming to Jesus who takes care of all of those things for us. You see, without faith and without trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, your other troubles will manifest themselves tenfold. 
In fact, even as a Christian, if you don't trust, you shall discover that those troubles overwhelm you and get you down. Jesus says, come. Isn't it a privilege this morning to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? What a privilege, right? Why? He forgives us all of our iniquities. Not some of them, but all of them, right? He heals all of our diseases because He forgives all of our sins. And listen, dear congregation, that doesn't mean you won't sin and you won't get sick. That will happen because you're in this body, in this world. If you were perfect, you're not going to sin. If you're perfect, you're not going to get sick. You are going to sin and you are going to get sick. So what does that mean? He heals all your diseases, forgives all your iniquities. It means you always find your resolution for those things in Jesus. When you sin, you go to Jesus. When you're sick, you go to Jesus. You get a little cough, a little nagging cough. You wonder, what is this? And then it turns to flu or perhaps COVID or something like that. Who knows? Life is fragile. What will you do? You should do like Hezekiah who became sick. And turned his face to the wall and wept before God. Said, oh God, I've done these things for you. You know I've, I've served you, I've pleased you. God in His grace spared the man. Gave him 15 more years. You know, it's possible you may have prayed something like that and not realized the consequence that God has granted you some extra time. And you don't even know it. Because of His grace and His mercy to you. I know that if I want spiritual rest, it finds resolution in Jesus only. This world, this world is constantly working on rejuvenation. What it needs is regeneration, right? It's constantly working on rejuvenation. So there's this maddening rush. It's everywhere. Newspapers, internet, YouTube, doesn't matter where you look. Facebook, uh, Twitter, it's everywhere you can imagine. There's this mad, futile rush for a new self. To re-engineer ourselves, to reorganize who we are. We must preserve the planet. Secure the climate. Revolutionize society. It's the only way we can go forward. We're constantly barraged with makeovers, Right? Makeovers in home. Makeovers in house. The television programs on how to make over your home. We're constantly faced with those things. Makeover of face and makeover of body. That's the rejuvenation of the world. All made supposedly easy when you look at the advertisements. For those who are not content, who are impressionable, that appeal is irresistible. You can be a new person. The new me. Isn't this world all about the me? Self? The new me? All of our lotions? All of our potions? Right? All of our nips and tucks and diet and detoxes? They provide superficial solutions. In fact, a smooth skin might conceal a shriveled soul. Spiritually. You see, there's no such thing as eternal youth. No such thing. There's only eternal life. There's only eternal life. That's what Jesus says, I give to you. When He says, I give you rest. 
give you my rest, my life, eternal life, eternal rest. And that rest is rest for your souls. It's exclusive, isn't it? And it's exceptional. It is. And you see, Jesus describes himself, I'm not like the world. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Have you ever thought about that? The truest, greatest man who has ever lived is the Son of God. And he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. When the world, in order to describe the greatest of men, proud, strong, look at them. Do you think for one moment Jesus was weak? Not for one moment was Jesus weak. But here he is. I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. And my yoke, he says, when you come follow me, it's easy. It's not hard, it's easy. And my burden is light. Why? Because I'm gentle and lowly with you. Listen, Jesus is not dealing with you like some Pharisee in counseling session. He's not dealing with you like that. He always says to you, come to me, come to me. He doesn't offer you a list of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, A, B, C, D, E. If you do that, you should go back. Come back next week and we'll talk again. There's nothing like that with Jesus. Come to me now. Today, I give you rest. Spiritual rest. Soul rest forever. Come. Come. And isn't rest for your souls all that matters? In the end, right? That's all that counts. Eternal peace. Eternal rest. I want that spiritual rest that Jesus offers me every day. How will I get it? I go to Him. We must go to Him, right? He, that He invites us. It's the only thing that gives you joy as a Christian. Jesus. Not, I did this, I did that. Maybe I should do this and this and the Lord will be pleased. No, Jesus only is our joy and our peace. Christ Himself. And you know, the incredible thing about coming to Jesus is that He enables you and me to forgive others, to be kind to others, to be gentle with others, to be tender with others, because He's been like that with us. Isn't that the woman taken in adultery? Oh, those men were standing around her, right? Those Jewish Pharisees and leaders. Rabbi, what must we do with this woman taken in adultery? Moses says we should stone her to death. Jesus bends down, starts writing in the ground. We don't know what he wrote in the ground. Maybe the names of the Pharisees who'd been with that woman. We don't know. But if any of you is without sin, then you be the first to pick up the stone and throw it at her. And one by one, they walked away. And it's only Jesus and her left. Is there no one here to condemn you? No, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Spiritual rest, right? You see, we are enabled to live in this world of darkness and in this world of trouble, in this world that oppresses us as spiritual people, the followers of the Lord Jesus, learning to be like Him, learning from Him, coming to Him all the time for spiritual rest. Ah, that's what I need. I need it every day. When you come to Jesus, God gets all the glory. God gets all the praise because the Son reveals the Father to us constantly and the Father makes known the Son to us. 
And so we come to know and to understand that we are in Christ. So Jesus says, and I don't know, maybe someone is here and you've never come to Christ. Jesus says, come to me. Don't delay. Come to me for soul rest. And you will discover that all the burdens of life become much lighter when you fly to Christ and have Christ. To whom shall we turn, Lord? Where shall we go? You and you only are the one who has the words of eternal life. Come to me, Jesus says. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so grateful for your word that you've given to us this morning. What a great passage from Matthew's gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ and his invitation to those of his people spiritually burdened and filled with difficulties and trials, unable to resolve the spiritual matters of life, Jesus says, come. And in the coming of that, we do discover that there is a lessening of all other things because Christ is with us. So we come. We come, each one of us this morning, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who came into this sin-ridden, dark world to give us light, the light of the knowledge of the gospel in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God. Thank you for the, go the gospel. Thank you for the good news. <clears throat> Thank you for the message of the Lord Jesus. We believe, we confess, we repent, we surrender ourselves afresh. Lord Jesus, be our eternal rest, we pray. Help us to find our rest day by day in who you are. So we surrender ourselves afresh to you, and may the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, apply these things to each of us this day and always. May Jesus be praised in the preaching of the word and in the receiving of the word in our hearts. We ask all of these things now with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.